Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Tennis is in Asia this fall, and I thought we would sort of get a sense of what the sport is like over there. Our guest this week is Courtney Wynn, senior writer, WTA insider, and in full disclosure, a former colleague here at Sports Illustrated, a uh, friend, someone I've always enjoyed talking uh tennis with um this is a a strange conversation part of it is that there is a delay it took us a long time to set this up and through skype there's about a five second delay so we talk over each other a few times but i thought this was oddly uh indicative of some of the challenges that we talk a little bit about globalization what is it like for tennis to go into this new market obviously there are a lot more events in asia china in particular than they were uh just a few years ago Hard to generalize too much about um, a region with, you know, four billion plus people. But we talk about uh, what tennis is like in Asia, how it is similar and different to events other parts of the world, which players take to it, which don't. Again, forgive the delay, but I think that in a you know, strange meta way, Jamie Lasanti, I think that dramatizes uh, some of the challenges. So this is a talk about tennis in Asia with Courtney. She's over there now, of course, and goes over. It seems like she goes over every fall. Um, we caught her at the at the China Open. It's about one in the morning, which probably meant matches were just getting done. So bear with the five second delay. Bear with the audio. But um, I think this is a really. I mean, it's. I, I I said to her, I I feel like when tennis goes to Asia, Jamie, it's a little like uh, your spouse going away on a business trip, and you're still, you know, you still love him or her. You still are in some contact, but it's it's not quite the same as. Uh, when you, you see them in person. So anyway, we're talking uh, tennis in Asia with Courtney Wynn, and we connect with her now. How are you? I'm doing all right. And yourself? No complaints. It took us about 45 minutes to set this up, various technology glitches, but you know what? It actually kind of fits into the theme. 
I thought we would discuss <laughs> fair, tennis fair in Asia, and I thought we would discuss uh, some of the so, some of the promise, but also some of the peril. Where where are you? Where you're in you're in Beijing this week? I'm in Beijing. So we about uh, it's twelve hours. So it's it's you you keep the late hours still. So it's uh, it's twelve thirty a.m. Um, it works out that way. I don't think you can do tennis otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Um, can I just tell you, it's funny talking tennis with a woman. <laughs> it's weird, right? Did that one Born cross the backhand, baby? Did that? Uh, that was a Cam Newton reference. Did that, uh, which also feeds into my theme here. Did that? Did that one cross oceans? Cam, Cam Newton's. Uh, it did re- cross. Re- okay. It yeah, it, it did cross oceans. I was talking a little bit with uh, Rowett uh, Bridgemath about it uh, today. So yeah, did, it resonated. Uh, they, I, I can only imagine uh, how, how this plays out. But this this all feeds into my my central point, which is sort of how, how much connectivity is there? I mean, how how much? Uh, I, I feel a little bit like when tennis leaves the uh, the U.S. and Europe, it sort of goes into a bit of a box for a lot of fans. And uh, there's there's some wacky fall events going on on the other side of the Pacific, and the uh, you, you can follow match scores, but it's it's a month of uh, of strangeness for most tennis fans are we uh tell us what it's like over there first and then we can sort of talk about my my connectivity questions what's uh what's it like covering a tennis tournament in asia it's definitely different um you know i i have this is probably my third or fourth year um coming to china to cover the tournaments in in wuhan and beijing and then when i was at sports illustrated covering shanghai as well and um and yeah it's it's a different world and i always tell particularly other journalists like you can't even attempt to weigh in on what in particular the Chinese tournaments are until you actually get boots on the ground and see what they are here and understand that it's a completely different business model, which I didn't really understand before I started to kind of come down here relatively frequently. So, you know, when you cover these events, you know, you do generally you see more empty stadiums than one would expect for the size of tournaments that we're talking about, whether it's an ATP Masters in Shanghai or, you know, a, a 500, you know, in, in or 250, I suppose, down in uh, Chengdu or Premier Mandatories, uh, as we have in, this week in, in Beijing. And when you talk to, and it's really jarring, I guess, uh, at first. And then when you actually talk to the fans and you talk to the journalists, the Chinese journalists in particular, and, um, and people, you start to realize that, like, they really don't, care at all about like the gate they like, the, the tickets, ticket tickets sold like, right so what so yeah, what, exactly. what is what, what is the business spot. model we're, we're, we're at we have like a five second delay here again all of this fits into our theme jamie of uh we 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 love the idea of expanding tennis's footprint we love the idea of setting up a beachhead in asia but there are still some uh kinks to be worked through on everything from uh podcast connectivity to uh, business models, but what what um, what what is the business model if it's not sort of conventional tickets, media revenue, sponsorship? What what is the business model? Well, I think that so much of it is obviously sponsor driven and also state driven. So I think that those two things that are maybe a little bit invisible that people don't see as much. But I remember last week sitting in Wuhan, and you know, again, in China, people work a lot. Uh, and they work nonstop. And so because of that, 
they just don't have the time to 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 go to a sporting event. That's not really something that is really registered with them. Now, over time, with a growing kind of Chinese yuppie class, I mean, there's a lot of money, um, new money to be had. They're starting to understand, okay, I have a ton of money. I don't know what to do with it. And what sports in China needs to do and is in the process of doing is trying to convince these people, pay for an experience. Don't go down the street and buy stuff. Like, don't go and spend your money on a tangible good, which right now is what they value. But, but experiences matter. And that's what sports are, right? You don't, you don't walk away with anything but a ticket, but you get the experience. And so that's kind of the development of the Chinese sporting culture. So that is, is kind of catching up slowly. But when I was in Wuhan last week, I was sitting there and sitting with a, um, Danielle Rossin, who's former Bloomberg reporter, um, and we were just looking at the sponsor board, you know, that sits behind the dais. And it's a lot of Chinese characters. It's a lot of companies. I have no idea what they are and what they do. But as we were kind of talking about it, we're just like, you know, that's the problem is that from the West, I look at this board and I don't know what the value of these sponsors are. But in China, they're massive. Um, and they dwarf a lot of the sponsorships to Western tournaments. And then the amount of money that's being poured in by Chinese companies hoping to expand themselves and get, you know, some exposure to the West. And then also Western companies obviously coming in and trying to get exposure into China. And then obviously the state investment as well and the federation investment. So in terms of how they make money right now, I almost kind of feel like Chinese tournaments are more commercials for China than right. individual like business opportunities, if that makes sense. To what extent, you know what word we use a lot in American sports, including tennis, is optics. That uh, for players, <laughs> there, there's an element of, of being performative, and for events, it's, it's a lot about presentation. It doesn't look great, um, at least by, by sort of conventional Western sports standards, when fans are empty and there, there isn't much uh, media presence. Obviously, a, a different model when there's public financing and you say sponsor-driven. I mean, for, first of all, is there, a, is there any sense that you get that there's an effort to fill the seats? I mean, if, if this is just sponsor-driven, why even hold them in conventional arenas and stadiums? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there is an, you know, ticket prices are not that expensive here. So it's not as though, you know, people are being priced out. I mean, I, I, know, I definitely know there are other tournaments like in the West, in, in Switzerland or uh, other countries where you look at the ticket prices and you're like, come on, nobody's going to pay that. That's a, that. That explains your empty seats right there. Um, I think that in China, so much of it is this kind of, unfortunately, or fortunately for China, <laughs> you know, they, they work a ton and they're fatigued. They work longer hours than we work or like, the, you know, there isn't a, really a nine to five culture here. And so to convince them, you know, when everything is said and done at, eight, it, you know, 6.30, 8 p.m. to go home and take the family and kids and come down to a tennis tournament, it's tough. Now, that being said, that's not to say that the interest isn't there because, Again, last week in Wuhan, I was quite surprised. The first day of the tournament was a Sunday, um, and that is a day off here. And it was sold out. And, like, I was shocked by it. I think the tournament was shocked a little bit by it. But it was a sold-out session in the evening. So it's not the interest isn't there. It's the time. It's the, just, you know, the way that, that sports are kind of structured. In Beijing, it's a, it's a lot different. I think in Shanghai as well. Um, just because in Beijing there's a big student culture, right? 
Right. So you get a, a very young group of people coming in, um, which is awesome and great. But it's it's tougher in some of the other in the other cities, I think. You know what I I always think is is a story that uh, doesn't get told enough in sports. I think something that really helps sports these days, again at least in the U.S., but I think this is fairly global, is these little devices we carry in our phones, and particularly Instagram and this desire to memorialize everything. People say, why are malls declining? And some of it is, yeah, it's you can order everything on Amazon and. Who wants uh, these, these durable goods when we can get them with a few swipes? But the other thing is that people want fewer and fewer things, and they want experiences. I mean, that's one sort of uh, that that's one challenge of retail these days. Um, do you think this ultimately is is going to help sports in China? I mean, it seems to me that uh, if we're talking about this trend toward experience and this trend towards memorializing everything on your phone, that's something that. Um, Will, will help tennis and help fill up these arenas. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely great point. And, and you do see that more and more. Like, you know, you do see the selfie culture in, in China, right, as the players are walking off the court and, and fans wanting to, to, to get photos with them, get those experiences, get the autographs, stuff like that. The issue, though, is still, I mean, I, I see it here, and I've been here, you know, three, four years in a row now, is that, for example, like, they go absolutely nuts for towels. <laughs> like, like, and you see the amusement. Sounds like tennis players. players. Like, like holy. Players. Yeah, exactly. Not unlike at Wimbledon with that random dude. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you throw a towel into the crowd, they go absolutely bonkers. You hit, um, you know, tennis balls into the crowd, they go absolutely bonkers. They, there is still this idea of, like, I want a thing from the player as opposed to like, I just really enjoyed watching that player. Now, that being said, one of the things that, again, this is something that you would only experience like if you're actually boots on the ground, is that a lot of these tournaments, particularly here in Beijing, I was just noticing it today and I noticed it last year as well, the grounds are packed. They just don't go into the stadium. And I asked a friend of mine who worked for the the China Open. Yeah, they're tailgating. And, and, And I asked him about it and he's like, well, Chinese tournaments are about building a holistic experience like you have to convince them it's not about the tennis it's like come down here and have a good time great concessions you know lots of like player driven activities around the ground so that you can get front and center with the players and so i would go and i would watch a match and i would be like man this this stadium is a little bit empty and i'm kind of surprised and then during the set break I'd walk out into the grounds of you know the national tennis center here in beijing and it's it's heaving with people which you never actually see on the, on the TV, but it, it did surprise me because I didn't, I don't know, I, I guess, I suppose I didn't expect that. I, I projected the empty stadiums onto the grounds, which wasn't necessarily the case. Can, can you ask, can you answer me, um, I'm curious about the prize money, that you, you just, you, you look at this, and the Tokyo has a 500 event, and it's, it's a million five, and Beijing has a 500 event, and it's 4.2. So these are two tournaments of the same tier and one of them's paying three times the money that's not to mention all the appearance fees is that just what happens when the public sector gets involved in sporting events gosh that's that's a good question i don't know in terms of like how that money is being fronted um whether or not that's coming straight out of sponsorship money or if it's coming out of um you know public funding I do think, though, that obviously, so when it is, when you do have government backing, when you do have federation backing, that's just going to be 
you know, this buffer, this financial buffer that you have that you can do with what you want in a way that that's purely a, finan- a private financial backing is just there's more volatility there, right? So in terms of Beijing, obviously it's a 500 for the guys. It's a mandatory for the girls. So in terms of being able to 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 hold the event, I mean, the money that they have to put up is massive, uh, particularly because it's a premier mandatory as opposed to Tokyo, which is a five for the girls and then a 500 for the guys. So it, it's tough, but I, I don't know how that money is sourced. I don't know who, who puts it up, honestly. I, I always used to like looking at the transcripts from, from these. I, I've never, I should, I should say this up front, I've never <laughs> been to a, uh, I've, I've you know, been to China, been to Japan, never been to a tennis event there, but I always used to look at these transcripts and the back and forth and the syntax with the athletes was always fairly jarring. I mean, one of them, uh, you know, Roger Federer, you lose to Rafa every time. How do you explain that? <laughs> and, um, you know, some of this obviously was, was probably lost in translation a bit, but how, how are these events covered? I mean, what, what else is different? But it, I'm interested in sort of the, the media interaction in particular. How is that different? It's very different. <laughs> the Chinese reporters are blunt. <laughs> There's no way around it. I've been around instances where, you know, the, 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 the reporter is basically calling the player fat. Like, oh, have, have you thought about going on a diet because you're a little heavy? Um, I think that there was there was one famous press conference in maybe Shanghai or Beijing where somebody commented on Roger Federer's nose. To Roger but, Federer. Know, it, it's to Roger Federer. And Roger's like, uh, you know, it, it's just a different level of bluntness, of transparency, of maybe not really being all too concerned about what this, you know, because they're, they've, they're parachuting in just like, you know, of you know, a British news reporter is parachuting in at Wimbledon and can ask these these crazy questions that those of us who are on the beat would never <laughs> consider asking because it would destroy your relationship right. with the player. Um, I think that that's one of them. I think the other thing that always stands out with um, with China with respect to the media is it's the manpower issue in China that is always so startling. Like they have so many people trying to help you. And I don't know what anybody is ever doing at any given time. I don't understand why they need the amount of people to do what they do. But the you know the the servicing to the media to what do you what do you uh, mean? You mean volunteers at the event? Yeah, the volunteers at the event, the the college students that are there trying to like practice their English. Um, There's a lot of fascination with any Western reporter that comes. Less so in Beijing and Shanghai, but definitely. Um, in some of the other cities, like in Wuhan, you know, they were taking group photos with like the transcriptionists, <laughs> like as though they were celebrities. And, um, you know, they see a tall blonde lady, they want to take a selfie, they have no idea who you are, they want to add you on Facebook. Um, she, did, she didn't just lose Facebook to Simona Hall. In China. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a weird obsession with the West of, and newness to it. But from the volunteers, like the helpfulness is is there. The lack of language facility is also there. So it creates a bit of a loss in translation situation where it's like, I know you want to help me, and I also need a thing done. Right. What, what about the— We're um, at a lot. We're at an impasse. What, what about the players? I mean, we sort of—we we saw the, the gratuitous shots of the, the players wearing the silk robes and they're behind, yeah, you know, the right. Forbidden City. Um what are what are the players like, and how much of this too? I'm thinking if if I'm a star, I think 
these are critically important tournaments in terms of scale and in terms of brand extension and penetrating this this new emerging market. But what are the play? I mean, we've seen some very strange results when we check our scores. But what what is the vibe among the players when they they go to Asia? It's you know, there's no way around it. It's tough. I think that it is tough for the Western players. Um, uh, it's to be in a country, and really, it's you know, not country, just China, but also even in Tokyo. But um, but to be in Asia, and especially in these cities where English does not help you at all, and you cannot communicate. I mean, even for, you know, I'm a pretty easygoing traveler, but I've definitely ordered room service, and something completely different came, and I can just go with it they kind of can't. That's just not how they're built, right? They're very finicky and very particular. The food is different. Um, And I I was listening to Simona Halep talk about it earlier this week where she said, it's not that the food is bad. It's not bad. It's just different. My body is not used to this food. And so it takes her a while and her system to get used to it. Um, And it's just, it's just different, you know? And I think that every player, it's hard. And also it's the end of the season. They're fatigued already. Um, which we all know, some of them are playing for something in terms of qualifying for Singapore or getting year in number one or qualifying for Zhuhai. But outside of that, finding that motivation can be very difficult. And um, and it, there's no shaking it. I mean, you definitely sense that when you talk to them, that there's kind of a like, I'm just trying to get through this. But the scope of the events are so large that they also know that they can't just mail it in. And the ones that do, they really, they might do it when they're young for the first few times, and then they start to realize like the opportunities that they're leaving on the table by doing that. Um, and, and we'll see whether or not it, it comes back to bite them. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's no way around it. it. It's not an easy swing for the Western players. Whereas like all the Asian players are on cloud nine. They're like, and I talk to them and they're like, this, what they're experiencing is what we have to deal with for like eight <laughs> months out of the season. Like, we get one month where, like, we know everything that's going on. Like, give us this. Like, okay, fair this, point. <laughs> for, uh, still, what, what you're describing sounds like uh, Tennis's version of, you know, ScarJo and Bill Murray in the uh, in the hotel bar. So, sounds like oh, totally. the disoriented, oh, uh, lost in translation. What what? Um, I want to ask you about the about the Asian players in a second. But what, what about these screwy results that we see when we you know wake up in the morning? That you know Sloane Stevens has lost a few matches and and Hollop beat Sharapova and beat her badly, and Coco got hurt. I mean, what are you seeing on the court? What Are there any sort of asterisks that you would uh, append as we see uh, this string of very strange results, especially on the women's side these last few weeks? Anything we should yeah, know? Yeah, I, mean, I think that one of the big... Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things is that, and, and it's definitely something that I always look at whenever I kind of, like, try to prognosticate what's going to happen in Asia, is that I do look at, like, who does well here and who doesn't. Because that has always been historically the biggest um, kind of explanation for some of the results. So, you know, you have like the Wozniakis, the Kavitovas, the Redzonskas have historically always done well here. A Halep typically doesn't. A Pliskova typically doesn't do well here. Um, that sort of thing. But I think that in a lot of ways, it's completely, it's, it's just a difficult swing to, to kind of predict because we are talking about very large tournaments, right? So Wuhan, the premier five, um, Beijing is a mandatory and it's not like premier fives and mandatories are predictable anyway, even when they're outside of Asia, when you have the, the, the high you know, concentration and density of, of talent at those tournaments, right. 
sometimes weird things happen, right? Like Vezina wins Indian Wells. I don't think anybody necessarily saw that coming. Conta, you know, going through the draw in Miami, um, you know, Halep winning Madrid, which people expected, but Sharapova bowing out to Bouchard in Madrid, which was surprising to many. Um, it's, it, I, I would argue that the results in Asia are not as wonky <laughs> as people think they are. They just think it just feels that way, which I definitely understand. But I don't think that they're any the results are any crazier than the ones that we get, you know, in Europe and the U.S. For so big, big tournament. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think some of it is just I. I was telling someone I said it's like when when tennis goes to Asia, it's like your spouse goes on a business trip and and you still love them and you still check in <laughs> once a day, but you're really not sure. I don't know. I guess guess they're having fun. Can't really relate. Uh, call me when you get a chance. It's um, it's as strange as it is for the players. Yeah, I, I feel like it's always that. strange for the fans. Um, t- so tell me. I mean, it seems like I, I always say one of the one of the real virtues of tennis is that Yao, Yao Ming comes to the NBA, and the NBA wants to, you know, ex- expand into China, and that's great. But they they ain't moving teams there. In the case of tennis, you can actually move tournaments to where the the action, where the commercial markets are. Obviously, you know, Li Na plays a, a big role here. But how much of this is about consumer markets and sponsorship, how much of this is about this is where the next wave of players is going to come from? And also, what what is the status from a participation standpoint? I mean, obviously, some, you know, there's there's some Chinese representation uh, on the women's side in the top 100. The men, I, I, I was looking at this, the men, men don't have a player in the top 200 yet. But is there a sense that, um, that we're going to see more players coming out of this region where now there are so many tournaments? I mean, I think that that's, I personally think that that's always the nat- natural consequence of, you know, it's the whole Billie Jean King, see it, sure. be it sort of right. thing. I mean, China gets a junior U.S. Open champion um, on the men's side, which is pretty shocking. And I think that, I mean, talking to Li Na last week, she was incredibly encouraged by that because the, the women, obviously the Chinese women, about pace the men. Um, I do think that it's still more of a commercial markets move. Than a, than a growth of the game move. I think the growth of the game, should that happen, will be, it's almost too long-term to really kind of gauge, right? Um, for the women, most of the talent that is coming out of China right now is out of Tianjin. Um, so um, and I think every single Chinese player in the top 100 are all from Tianjin, um, which is interesting, and it has to do a lot with the way that their system is, is built down there, which is built on a little bit more flexibility as opposed to kind of the rigidity that, you know, we've heard Li Na talk about right, right. Um, from her province. But but I do think that it's more of a commercial issue because the, the scope and scale is just absurd here, right? I mean, if you hold a tennis tournament or um, and you get, I don't know, 0.5% eyeballs on it in China, that is still a, a way more than, than when you hold potentially an indoor tournament in Europe, which, yeah, you might pass the stands and you might maybe, I don't know, but the sponsorship exposure is so much smaller in that instance compared to what they're getting in China. You know, it, long-term, is that a sustainable model? I don't know, but I, I, I it's just, because I'm not an economist and definitely not a world economist, but um, but in the short term, it definitely makes sense. And so with the tournaments moving here, it's not, I don't think necessarily because, oh, we really want to get into China. I think that there is part of that there, but I do think that the big driver is that that's where the money is. And right now, 
the alternative to this Asian swing is what it used to be, which is a fall indoor European. Right, right. And when you look at what that when you look at what that market is, what the commercial market is, it's so much smaller compared to what they're doing now. So I don't know, business wise it's a tough it's a tough decision to make to like pull it back to Europe. No, I I think if you if you gave this to McKinsey, they would say you're you know, you're you're crazy. You've got this. Uh, right. you've, you've got 1.6 billion people. Asia has what? You know, four, four and a half billion people in Asia, and you're going to go to Filderstadt to, because uh, you know, <laughs> BMW is going to be your title sponsor. No, go to this emerging market. I, you, you mentioned that. I mean, it, it is very strange to see the empty stands in in a region. Um, you know that that is so so populous. But but you think if you're if you're looking at this macro tennis. You like this part of the calendar. I mean, this this makes sense. This this makes sense to me, and it it it's a and admittedly, it can be a hard sell to players and and especially the fans. And I totally get the 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 point that you're making that it, you know, kind of the yeah, the spouse that goes on the business trip sort of thing because it's true. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm in Beijing and I was in Wuhan covering two massive events where there are significant storylines and events going on. And I feel like I'm talking into a cave, right? Because everybody's asleep. Uh, nobody's paying attention to what's necessarily going on. And I'm using hyperbole, obviously. People are paying attention, but not a ton. Right. And, um, and that can be very, very frustrating. But from a financial perspective, from um, just what is on offer and what that then that money does allow for the players, for the tours, uh, for the tournaments in terms of like, you know, making that money and reinvesting and, um, and building, I think it's pretty massive. And so I, I do personally blanch a little bit at sometimes with kind of like the Western lens with which tennis obviously has permanently on its face. Um, uh, with it, when it comes to kind of judging what happens in the Asia Pacific region, particularly in, you know, non-Australia, <laughs> um, but within Asia, but, uh, you know, it seems to be working for them. And they, the, the tournaments are not complaining. It's not like they're moaning about X, Y, and Z. I mean, they, they, seem, they seem pretty happy with the setup that they have. Um, and, and slowly, as the players get more and more exposure, they become more comfortable. I mean, I think that it's really weird that, like, the one, one player that has taken to China in a way that I never thought that she would is Petra Kvitova. Really? Who, who, who didn't like, who, who yeah. didn't, didn't like New York because it was so chaotic and crowded? Right, but somehow she loves Asia. She 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 knows it. She understands it. She she she's like a fish in water here. It's really peculiar. I never would have thought of this small kid from Fulmec. What do you you uh, want to play? Republic, uh, who, yeah, you you want to play armchair psychologist? What what do you think that's about? I mean, you know, granted the surface, you know, um, the, the, the surface suits her game, and but I don't. I mean, you think there's something? You think 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 we can something on um, a psychological level? Do you, do you think there's? Uh, I'm curious, curious what your explanation is. It's a is. hard one. I, re- I really don't know because you're right. I mean, when it comes to the busier tournaments, she doesn't really like them very much here. Obviously, she stands out like a sore thumb, right, a six-foot, you know, tall blonde lady. Um, but she's always taken taken to it. When I ask her about it, I'm like, you seem to get along with it. She's like, I really like the food. The people are really nice and very helpful. Um, and I think it may be just as bad as like the positive vibe that surrounds her. And then also she was genuinely good friends with Lena. And right, right. Um, I think that Lena did 
do a pretty good job of kind of explaining to Petra, like, so this is what Chinese people are about. And Petra kind of gets it. And so she doesn't, she doesn't like, she doesn't have the knee jerk responses that maybe some of the other Western players might have with some like basic Chinese mannerisms or customs or food or whatever. But she's just, I don't know. They've kind of adopted her weirdly. Um, <laughs> But, you know, there's a history of that. I don't know if you, there's a player, Lisa Bonder, who is this sort of blonde woman from Michigan who was a perfectly nice player in the 80s, but, you know, never made a splash of the slam, who was wildly popular in, in Japan. Amanda Kutzer in Japan was, was a huge deal. I mean, it, it's there, there's, a oh, his, yeah, Kutzer, there's a history yeah. of that. But um, I, I want to, re- real quick, um, the, the sort of tennis storylines that I think intensify the appeal of the sport. Um, and they're as much a part of, of this whole subculture as, as forehands and back, you know, Maria's comeback and her book tour and who's mad at who and, you know, where, where's Vika? I mean, just sort of the, the storylines that you cover um, day in, day out that are part of this whole tableau. What happens to those in Asia? I mean, do, do these fans know, hey, at the U.S. Open, Sharapova was coming off, uh, you know, had a controversial wild card and beat Hollop in the first round. I mean, it's the whole sort of subtext of tennis still part of uh, the experience? Does that make sense? Yeah, I haven't thought about it, but no, it totally makes sense. Um, I don't think that it is. I think that, um, I mean, even just being here, obviously, the discussions about Sharapova and wild cards and the suspension and everything, it it, it never came up um, with the Chinese reporters. Uh, There was one reporter who was British who asked her about her reaction to Dan Evans' suspension uh, and and rather predictably, she's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to comment on something I don't know. Um, but but in terms of, like, the broader storylines, there isn't so much of that. It is – there is kind of – and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but the, the, there is kind of a zoo-like reaction whenever the tour rolls in through uh, the cities that I've been to, in particular Wuhan and Beijing and Shanghai, where they're just happy to, like, see it. Um, and to be around it. Um, it's their annual thing. They're excited to see Maria. They're excited to see Petra again. Um, you know, they're getting into Pliskova. They love their Halep and their Wazes. Um, and they're just excited. They're, they're, there isn't much more, com- there, there isn't a complexity, I suppose, um, that I can observe anyway, with respect to their fan culture. It, they're just They're just happy to be around it. Um, and still learning, and, and they have their own nicknames for their own players. I mean, there's basically a Chinese version of, like, Tennis Forum, um, <laughs> where, you know, they kind of all gossip about the players, and they come up with these incredible nicknames that yeah, give us your best they nickname. attempt to repeat back. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so it, it's, a different, it's a different fan culture. It's a different media culture, um, and it doesn't go to much deeper than just kind of surface level, I think. I mean, I, I feel like we, we kind of, I should have said this up front, but one thing that's really interesting to me about this is this is what every business, you know, government, this private, public, I mean, everyone's dealing with this, right? How, how do we how do we merge into the global economy? And there are going to be questions about culture, and there are going to be questions about presentation, and things as silly as as you know, the, the the food and the time differences. I mean, every business in the world is dealing with this on, on some level. So I don't, I don't want to make, I mean, tennis in, in some ways is probably ahead of the game. I mean, this is, I, I think it's a fairly common, mm. we, we could just as easily be having this conversation about uh, 
you know, the, the, the steel industry or this is, you know, this is anti, anti-Brexit, right? I mean, in some ways, this is really instructive for anything. But <laughs> um, it's uh, it's a strange, I mean, just sort of, I, I don't know. I mean, are, are, do, you, do you sense this is a, a general conversation theme? I mean, is this is this a sense that this is very tennis related or, or do you see sort of these these broader angles to this? I mean, in terms of the business side of things and and and, and globalization. Yeah, I don't know. Is is there any sense that this is um, that there's something sort of universal to this conversation we're having? Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, I I have family members who work in Asia. Um, you know, whether they're lawyers who work for companies in Asia, or my father's like an oil consultant, so he works a lot with India and, and Chinese companies and things like that, getting refineries set up. Um, and we, all three of us, my brother-in-law, my dad and I, can sit around a table and discuss, you know, tennis, oil, and tech, um, Asian tech, and be seamless in the discussion about what are the challenges yeah, of going exactly. into Asia. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Work, yeah, working right. with Asian companies and working with the culture clash and what happens when you have, you know, Dutch people working with Asian people and Indians working with Japanese and you know, exactly. You in, you in, have in uh, like, right. You you have the core product. You have the raw material. And we're going to put our uh, branding on it. No wait, that's going to do different things to the brand. I mean, it, I, I feel like in a lot of ways, there's something very macro about what you and I have been discussing. For sure, I think it's super macro, and I think that the fascination to me is when the, I said this to my family before. The difference is, is that in their industries, the macro is recognized. Right. So so the higher ups and the people who are the workers, they understand that they're in this world of culture clash and that there needs to be kind of a negotiation and um, deference to somebody at some point in different schemes. Even within tennis, you're talking about like what, like, you know, 40 different countries represented at a tournament and different norms and different mores. And somebody wants to make a statement and they want to do their own thing and they don't really care if that is really insulting in Chinese culture because they're going to pick up sticks and they're going to go somewhere else next week. And so in tennis, it's, it's a lot more difficult to kind of wrangle it in because the long-term right. That's a good implication. Point. Yeah, right, right. Right? Like it, it doesn't, the, the players, for example, or the tournaments, for example, or the fans or the media don't feel the long-term you know, repercussions for what they do sometimes. Right. And so that's where I think tennis is a little bit different. It's like the journalist. It says, Roger, you always lose to Rafa, what you say. Um, Speed (laughs) round. Uh, Three tennis questions, speed round. Speaking of Roger and Rafa, does one of them play play better in Asia? I I don't don't mean uh, perform better. I don't don't mean perform better. I mean, does one of them have a different, uh, I mean, obviously both of them have presences and consciously so. But um, are they, yeah. are they perceived and received it, differently? Well, Rogers, Roger, and Rogers, Roger everywhere. So the Roger Federer effect is very much in full force in Asia all the time uh, when he plays Shanghai. So I've definitely been a part of that, and it's it's a bit of a circus. Uh, but Rafa, I mean, I don't think that the Roger Rafa Fadal whole dynamic of everything changes that much in Asia. It's the same. People get very excited, very rabid. Rafa takes off his shirt after the match. Everybody goes nuts. It's the same old, same old. That never looks different to me <laughs> from tournament to tournament. Oh, Rafa and the shirt will cross any cultural barrier. Um, 
A year from, a year from now, what is Maria Sharapova ranked? A year from now, Maria Sharapova is ranked inside the top 20. Wow. That's uh, as, as far as I'll go. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I think that she's playing top, top 20 tennis. I think that I still have some questions as, a, as, a, as, as to her ability to kind of string everything along. So it's great to have a singular breakout tournament, and it's great to beat Halep in the first round of the U.S. Open. But I think part of the reason why she lost to Halep so easily in the third round of, of Beijing is because it was the third round of Beijing, and it wasn't the first round of Beijing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in terms of you know, in terms of physicality and playing back-to-back tournaments, and you know, she had that great tournament in Stuttgart, and then things kind of tailed away after that. So until it feels like she can play consistently, I, yeah. That's kind of that's my biggest question. We we could point out the two players outside the top twenty one majors in twenty seventeen, but uh, no point taken. All right, final question: Who 100%. who uh, who who finishes the year number one WTA tour? WTA tour right now. I am going to go with. Ah, uh, it's so hard. If I had to narrow it down, Serena two, Williams. I would say Halep and Muguruza. <laughs> Serena <Right. laughs> uh, Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to say Halep or Muguruza will finish the year number one. All right. This was, even and with it, a five... So much is going to be decided in Singapore, so... Yeah, no, I think... You know, I think if, if nothing else is uh, appealing about this fall, it's that uh, I, I suspect both these year-end events will determine the number one ranking again. Um this was great. I, there was a five-second delay, which always makes for a little bit awkward uh, dialogue. But um, I, th- I think we, A, I think we fought through it. And B, I think there's something very meta about that as we discuss uh, challenges of being oceans away from the nerves, you know, from the nerve center. Um, it, it was probably fitting that we talked over each other a little bit. But um, go to sleep. It's one in the morning. I will do that. Thanks a lot, boss. Thanks. Take care. All right. Thanks to our guest, Courtney. Hopefully she's going to sleep now that it's past one in the morning. Again, thank you for listening and bearing with uh, some of our technical issues. Thanks, as always, to uh, Jamie Lasanti. Jamie, did this make you want to go to a tennis tournament in Asia? Yes. I've been wanting to go since Courtney wrote about her troubling experience in a Wuhan Walmart a few years back. Can we link that piece? We will link that piece. Right. It's great. There are great uh, photos to go along with it. We, we miss Courtney here. We all uh, we, we all understand, and we're glad she's still in tennis. We still read her. We still follow her. We miss her here at Sports Illustrated. Good people, Courtney Wynn. Um, all right, that does it for this week. Uh, I think we're due for a player. Would you agree with that, Jamie Lasanti? We've been trying, but they've been playing. Exactly. It's very hard to get players, believe it or not, especially with uh, uncertain results. Ask Duty Sella about uh, that and uncertain schedules. Um, it also doesn't help that uh, they're half a world away and 12 hours away. But, uh, no, we talked administratively about uh, the Labor Cup and uh, mid-match coaching last week. This week we talked tennis in Asia. I think we're going to do a little more meat and potatoes, X's and O's tennis next week. Um, all right, that does it from here. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a good week, and we'll do it again in seven days. Mm-hmm.